0: In the words of the Trade-Offs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Trade-Offs. You can find Trade-Offs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientists. with me, Chris Smith, and also with Ginny Smith.
1: Hello, and in the show this week, why smell might be down to the way molecules vibrate. A 270 million year old fossilised tapeworm, or at least it's eggs. How scientists have watched thoughts moving in a fish's brain. And are we on the verge of a cure for the common cold? scientists have discovered a powerful new way to block viruses growing inside cells.
0: Plus, saving the Tasmanian devil. New research has revealed why an infectious cancer that's spreading amongst the animals when they bite each other isn't attacked by their immune systems.
1: If you'd like to get in touch with us here at The Naked Scientists, email chris at thenakedscientists.com, tweet at Naked Scientists, or find us on Facebook.
0: The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKFast.co.uk And joining us to take a look at the science news this week is Phil Robinson. He's from the Royal Society of Chemistry's Chemistry World magazine and also Laurie Winkless from the National Physical Laboratory. So hello to both of you. Uh, Phil, kick off and tell us why it is that smell might be all about vibrations.
2: So Chris, we've got a a story here, a really fascinating story I think, um, about uh, a controversial theory about the way in which our sense of smell works. Um, Now just a bit of background, the sense of smell is is not terribly well understood, um, or at least the model that we have for it doesn't explain all of the evidence. Uh, So we know that in order to smell something, the molecule that makes that smell, if you like, has to make its way into your nose. And in your nose, you have some receptors, olfactory
0: receptors, they pick up this molecule. And that's the mechanism of of smelling something. So everyone thought it's just that chemicals go up your nose and they dock with the receptor that is the right shape for that Ex- molecule. You get a change in the activity of that receptor which gets into the brain and the brain says, aha, that particular odorant molecule is there. Exactly. Mm, bacon or Chanel Number 5 <laughs> or whatever it happens to be. Sounds um, good to me. So what's wrong with that
2: theory? Well, there? so that, that theory, that, I mean, there's nothing really wrong with that theory. That's quite a well-established theory for bio biochemical interactions. that the molecule docks with the receptor. It uh, essentially boils down to shape recognition. You know, the molecule has a shape, the receptor has a complementary shape, the two come together, the, the lock and key mechanism, as it's, uh, it's often called. The problem is with smell is that we have some exceptions to that rule. So, for example, you can have two quite distinct molecules. So if you take, for example, uh, the musk smell, which will be relevant later... Um, the uh, the muscone molecule, which is made by the musk deer actually, and was used a lot in the fragrance industry, uh, is a sort of fifteen-membered uh, carbon ring, if you like, quite a big molecule. And uh, but the synthetic musks that then went on to replace muscone in the in the fragrance industry, there are a whole range of these, and they all have very very different shapes. The the nitro musks, the first that came along, for example, have a benzene ring with various other constituents on it, and uh, structurally, morphologically, they're quite distinct, but they have exactly the
0: same smell. So this doesn't quite fit with our idea that shape recognition is what brings about smell. So are they really such a different shape that they can't sneak into the same receptor that would detect the musk and fool it into thinking it's smelling that when it's not really? Oh,
2: they really are. Structurally, as I said, morphologically and chemically distinct as well. You know, the the differences really are quite uh, striking. So this says there must be something else going on. So, exactly. There must be something else happening. What is it? So enter Luca Turin from the uh, Alexander Fleming Research Centre in Athens. Uh, He's got a slightly controversial, a very controversial idea about about how smell works. He says that uh, actually when it comes to smelling, olfaction, it's really got nothing to do with shape recognition at all. And in fact, it's another property of the molecule. It's motions, uh, more specifically, the vibrations of the molecule. So in a molecule, the the bonds between those atoms in the molecule, they're not static, they they move, they vibrate. The atoms will will vibrate uh, along the bonds between them. Um, And Luca says that actually that's what the receptor recognises. It recognises these vibrations. In effect, it reads the vibrational spectrum, if you like, of the molecule and responds to that and not to its
0: shape how on earth would it do that?
2: The theory that he puts forward is that, uh, and we have, to, we have to veer briefly into the world of quantum mechanics here, but uh, we shan't stay for very long, so don't, don't get too worried. There is a proposal that uh, there's a mechanism known as quantum tunnelling. Now, just to explain that very briefly, on the, on the classical scale, the scale that you and I operate on, the, the macroscopic scale, where everything is the size of us, if you like, or relative it's impossible for something to pass through a barrier unless it has sufficient energy to cross that barrier. A ball will not roll up the hill unless you give it sufficient energy to go up the hill. On the quantum scale, when you get down to the level of atoms, that doesn't quite hold true anymore. Quantum mechanics allows that object, whatever it is, and in this case we'll talk about an electron, allows that electron to exist to have a probability beyond the barrier. And that quantum tunnelling can be assisted by the vibrations of the molecule. That can provide the energy to inject to allow this tunnelling process to take place. So what's their evidence that okay. this has actually got some weight behind it? Exactly. So, so how does he set about proving that this is, uh, this is the case? Well, he does this by, um, if, if we talk about that uh, vibration again, if you imagine two balls on a spring, the spring will vibrate with a certain frequency. If you replace one of those balls with a heavier ball or a lighter ball, the frequency of the vibration will change. So that's effectively what Luca does in his experiments. He takes the hydrogen atoms and he replaces them with deuterium atoms. Now, deuterium is an isotope of hydrogen. It's basically exactly the same as hydrogen. But um, a bit heavier. But a bit heavier, twice as heavy. In fact, it has a neutron in the nucleus uh, as well as the proton, whereas hydrogen only has a proton in its nucleus. So it's twice as heavy. So by replacing the hydrogens with deuterium, he makes that atom heavier, that component of the molecule heavier, the vibrational frequency of the bond will change, and if vibration does indeed
0: have an impact on smell, then we ought to see some effect. And if you make molecules that have got lots of deuterium in them to to make them heavier, do people smell the same thing differently? This is exactly what Luca has done in his latest,
2: latest experiment. So he takes, uh, he takes a molecule, cyclopentadecanone, uh, which again has a musky smell, and he uh, systematically replaces the hydrogen atoms with deuteriums. Uh, it doesn't happen straight away, but when you replace about half of the atoms, the, uh, the subjects that were uh, given these, these scents to smell reported that uh, at around about that point they become more burnt,
0: they become muskier. So, it, there is some evidence that perhaps Luca's got onto something. So, smell is actually all down to vibration. That's actually amazing. Well, something that might have smelled when it was first produced, but certainly doesn't now, is fossilized faeces, known as coprolites. And researchers this week are announcing the discovery of the oldest fossilized tapeworm eggs. This is an amazing piece of work. It's done by Paula Denitsian Dias, who's at the Federal University of Rio Grande in South Brazil. And uh, they've got this paper in plus one they've been to this this region called sao Gabriel, and there's what they say was probably a freshwater lake which was drying up at some point because there are lots and lots of these fossilized fish feces, these coprolites, all in one area and by looking at the shape of this, they can actually tell what sort of fish it came from. They know it was a sort of shark like or ray like fish, and it's about five centimeters by two centimeters, and someone took a thin section of it and looked at it under the microscope and they can actually see these really small... They're about, I suppose, about a tenth of a millimetre across These structures at one end. And there's about 93 of them, and they're little ovals. And looked at more closely, they are indistinguishable from tapeworm eggs. And inside one of them is even a little larva of a worm about to hatch. And it's even got the little hooks that the larvae make to cling on. And no one has found anything this old before. These are the earliest tapeworm eggs but the the reason this is so interesting is it shows you that even two hundred and seventy million years ago when these feces were laid down for want of a better phrase, actually this parasitic life cycle was already well established, and you think you know that 's not that long in real terms after big complex life really got going in the first place. i mean it's just absolutely striking isn 't it?
1: Wow, amazing you wouldn't think that you could get something that old and and still see. Life happening like that in it.
0: Yeah, I think that the fact that it's that old and that, that you can preserve that level of detail is in itself extraordinary. But also, that, as I say, the fact that these these forms of life were that well established, that parasitic cycle of these tapeworms were there 270 million years ago.
1: So did we not know that tapeworms were around that long ago before this?
0: No, I mean, there was an assumption that they must have turned up at some point, but this proves that they were well-established, not just getting going, they were well-established and had a clear life cycle even that long ago.
1: Well, from um, fossilised fish faeces to some living fish, um, a new imaging technique has actually allowed scientists to see thoughts as they occur in real time in fish as they contemplate their prey.
0: In so much as fish do contemplate, I <laughs> suppose. Yes,
1: um, so I think maybe perhaps we should say as they're sensing and reacting to their prey. Who's done this? This was a group of Japanese researchers led by Akira Muto and they genetically engineered these zebrafish to produce a glowing green label which is called GFP, green fluorescent protein and they produce this in an area of the brain called the optic tectum and this is involved in decoding vision. So they made this green glow um, become switched on when nerve cells in this part of the brain became active so that you can actually see different areas of this optic tectum light up when the fish look at different things.
0: So what did they show them? I mean, how do they know that? How do they know the fish is looking at object X or Y?
1: Well, first of all, they showed them an LED screen and they put a dot on the screen, they just flashed this dot and they showed that these brain cells in the optic tectum could react to that dot flashing on and off. They then started moving the spot around on the screen and they actually found that the area that lit up in the brain moved around the region.
0: Oh, excellent. So you can actually see effectively the movement being translated onto different clusters of nerve cells as different nerve cells get switched on when you stimulate different bits of the eye with the light.
1: Exactly and this is something that's known as topographic mapping and it's actually relatively common Um, the brain's laid out kind of like a map of the world so we have topographic maps for senses so different areas of your body when they're touched will cause different bits of your brain to react and it showed that the same happens for the fish different parts of the fish's visual world are mapped on to different parts of the brain.
0: So what did they conclude from this? I mean, we we know already that the, the retina maps onto different brain areas. So what does this add? I mean, is it just the fact that we're able to watch these thoughts or responses occurring in real time like this
1: well yes that is probably the most exciting thing that you can actually watch it as it's happening whereas most imaging techniques there's a bit of a delay or um, they can be quite invasive so sometimes you have to you know pin the fish down or or put it in a machine I'm not sure if they've done that with fish but um, this way you can actually basically have the fish in a naturalistic environment and still see what's going on inside it So the next part of the experiment, they offered the fish a paramecium, which is a small organism that young zebrafish like to eat.
0: A tasty fish-sized treat.
1: (laughs) Exactly. And they watched the fish as it watched this paramecium. And they found that um, nerve cells lit up in the optic tectum on the opposite side of the brain to the side that the paramecium was on. I mean, and that
0: figures because of course the visual system's crossed over isn't it everything I look at on the left is interpreted by the right side of my brain and so on.
1: Yes exactly so the same thing was happening in the fish. But what was really interesting is when the fish began its prey capture behaviour which is when it starts approaching the prey and pursuing it with its eyes there was one particular part of the tectum towards the rear of it that always became active.
0: So what can you conclude is that is that the sort of the execution centre that says, right, this is, this is lunch, go and get it?
1: Well, yes, it suggests that this area of the brain is connected to um, the region that produces these capture behaviours. That They've got a special region that goes, oh, that's prey, maybe I should stalk it and try to eat it.
0: So I guess that this technique is a nice way of actually examining what underpins complicated behaviours, neurologically speaking.
1: Exactly. So they only express this protein in the optic tectum, but you could engineer fish that express it in different areas, and that could allow us to look at different kinds of behaviours.
0: Thanks, Jenny. Well, another way to look at what's going on in the brain is to do a brain scan, and scientists traditionally do that best with an MRI, Magnetic Resonance Imaging Scan, but the resolution of these hasn't been brilliant up until now, but that might be about to change. Laurie, uh, you've been looking at some papers in science this week on this very subject. First of all, tell us, what actually is MRI? How does it work?
3: MRI is magnetic resonance imaging, and it's a technique, as you mentioned, is used a lot in medical sciences. And basically, when when you're put into an MRI scanner, you actually lie inside a large magnet, which produces a huge magnetic field. And that magnetic field can align all of the protons in the hydrogen inside your body. And what you do then is you put pulses of radio waves on top of that and those pulses cause the protons to lose their alignment a little bit. And as they do that, they produce a very, very small radio signal and you can then capture and detect that and use it to build up an image.
0: I suppose one of the reasons why uh, MRI is limited is that those signals are really small. So you get down to the point where you cannot detect a signal sufficiently small to, to improve the resolution. In other words, how clear the pictures are any further than a certain point.
3: Yes, exactly. I mean, most MRI scans, the, their resolution is to about a millimetre. So actually pretty big in terms of the science I'm used to talking about, which is nanotechnology. And and that is limited, as you said, by the fact that it's quite a small signal that you're trying to measure. It's a very, very small signal and it gets a little bit lost in all of the other information that's being detected at the same time.
0: So what's the solution?
3: Well, there are two groups, one led by Thomas Stedeker in Stuttgart in Germany at the Max Planck and another by John Maiman at IBM's Research Institute in California. And independently, they've come up with quite a similar solution that will produce nanoscale MRI images. And they do that using a girl's best friend. diamonds. (laughs)
0: The diamonds are forever. They're also for MRI scans. How does it work? Tell us more.
3: Uh, Both of these teams have produced a very, very thin layer of diamond and diamond is just a lattice, a, a collection of carbon atoms. And what they've done is they've done some clever chemistry, bombarded it with nitrogen gas, and so displaced some of the carbon atoms in the diamond and replaced that with nitrogen atoms, which come along with an extra electron. And that extra electron is very, very close to the surface of this already thin surface of diamond. And because it's so close to the surface, it's very sensitive to any electromagnetic fields that are produced outside the detector.
0: And so as a result, you can then detect those fields. And And what sort of resolution can they achieve with this then?
3: Well, these guys are pretty confident that they can actually image individual proteins. So they're mo- particles that are just, or molecules that are just a few nanometers in length. But really the dream is to get down to atomic resolution. So you could actually image cells down at the atomic level.
0: Do you think that will be possible?
3: I mean it looks pretty uh, likely to be honest. Uh, These these, uh, magnetometers that they've produced, these diamond structures, they haven't optimized them yet. This was almost a first second go and they know that they can improve the quality of the detector. And that's really one of the main reasons that MRI and its related technique in chemistry called NMR, nuclear magnetic resonance, has been so limited. A lot of it is to do with the detector. So if they keep on improving the detectors, you could hopefully improve the resolution down to that scale.
0: Sounds costly, though, all these diamonds flying around. you also have to watch all these lab technicians who want to nick them to marry their boyfriends and girlfriends with.
3: (laughs) Unfortunately, they're not that kind of diamond. You actually can produce them pretty cheaply now using um, a a kind of a vapour deposition. And they're not quite as shiny and nicely cut as the ones that most girls would like to get.
0: Okay, so you might get a disappointed fiancé. Laurie, thank you. I think so. Now, to finish this week, we'll also look at the topic of TB, tuberculosis. Now, we estimate that uh, in the region of 2.2 billion people around the world have got TB. It's an incredible number, maybe a third of the world's population. Why is it such a problem? Well, partly because it's very hard to treat. Once you've got TB, it's not a question of a quick course of antibiotics for seven days and it'll go away. You actually need to treat people for six months. And one of the reasons for that is that when people get TB, which can actually go all around the body and pretty much affect any organ in the body, the organism has this habit of having phases where it's very active and then phases where it's very inactive or quiescent. And so if you just give drugs, then if the organism happens to be off and quiescent when the drugs are floating around, then it can't die can't be re- removed. So you have to give the drugs for an extended period of time to guarantee that you're going to get clearance, or so we thought. Because there's a paper in the journal Science Translational Medicine this week by Antonia Campos Neto, who's at the Forsyth Institute in Massachusetts, and they did some experiments on mice where they found that if they infected mice via the airborne route, in the same way that we pick up most cases of TB, you just breathe it in, the mice, months later, if they looked in their bone marrow they could get TB out and they could grow the TB, proving it was in a viable state. And so they went looking for where the TB was hiding and it's lurking in bone marrow stem cells. Now these stem cells are actually a really good place for the bug to go to because they divide, so the bug is always going to have a new home to live in. They're also in what we call an immune-privileged site. The immune system's not very active in the bone marrow, so the TB is less likely to be hit. And these particular cells they live in, they make something called the abcg 2 flux pump easy for me to say but what it actually does is it pumps out antibiotic molecules in the cell so these bugs are finding cells that are very good at excluding tb treatment from the cell and they're the perfect home for these bugs so they then said well what about humans then and they went to people who had been diagnosed with tb who had had a clearance treatment of drugs for tb And they got bone marrow from them and in one in every few thousand cells from the bone marrow they examined was capable of growing TB, proving there was infectious TB in these people years or months down the line after they'd actually had treatment. Now the good news story here is that they actually know what these stem cells are. There's a chemical marker called CD271 which they can use to home in on it. And that means that there's a chance you could say, well, now we know what cell we're dealing with, we can identify it and we can optimise treatment or find a way of addressing the drug to that cell in order to make sure we clear this very important reservoir of TB, which up until now had been completely missed.
1: Wow. So does this mean that people who thought they were cleared of TB could be relapsing later on and up until now we didn't know why?
0: Yes indeed And this is a major problem with TB That it keeps coming back We we currently are in a pretty happy state with TB Because drugs came along Lots of people got treated What was a major scourge At least in the Western world Actually went away Or so we thought Because now a lot of people who had it Are getting older Their immune system is becoming less robust And back it's coming And it's probably coming from sites like their bone marrow Or at least in part coming from the bone marrow And, and that's going to be the problem But at least now we know the problem's there So we can try and do something about it This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Ginny Smith. If you'd like to get in touch with any questions or comments, then you can email the programme. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can also tweet at Naked Scientists or you can find us on Facebook.
1: Still to come, the genetic breakthrough that might help save the Tasmanian devil and why we see tabby cats but not tabby humans.
0: But first, researchers have announced that they've come up with a new way to block the growth of viruses, and this might even offer us a cure against the common cold. Beth Levine from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center has discovered a molecule that can activate a system called autophagy that cells use to remove waste, including any viruses and even bacteria that are also trying to grow in the cell. Now, she got the idea from HIV, which actually turns off the system, so turning it back on Hinders virus growth. And what's more, the discovery might even hold the key to treating degenerative brain diseases like Huntington's disease, too.
4: When
5: we embarked upon this study, we were interested in trying to understand how viruses disarm an essential mechanism that cells use to defend themselves against viruses.
0: What is that?
5: Um, That is a uh, cellular pathway called autophagy. In very simple terms, you can view it as a cellular garbage disposal mechanism, basically a way of cleaning up the trash, as we say in the U.S., and getting rid of all the harmful or unwanted things inside the cell, such as damaged organelles or bacteria or viruses that have gotten inside the cell or misfolded proteins that can cause disease,
0: and so cells can just turn this process on or increase the rate at which it happens if they need to, to deal with an accumulation or a surfeit of trash, as you put it.
5: Yeah, So it all cells do this all the time. It is essential for cellular survival. When they are confronted by different kinds of stress or a need to rev up the process, uh, they do so and viruses and intracellular bacteria have found ways to outsmart that.
0: Do they need to outsmart the process? Because if you've got a virus trying to grow in a cell, then the virus is causing the cell to accumulate various things which are actually going to turn into ultimately bits of virus. And were the cell to throw those away, it would obviously hamper the ability of the virus to grow. So by inhibiting this disposal system, the virus is optimizing or improving the efficiency at which it's able to grow in the cell?
5: Exactly, yes.
0: And so what viruses have evolved to have strategies that mean they can turn this off?
5: So far the viruses that we know about that turn this off are HIV, influenza virus and several different um, herpes viruses.
0: So the fact that it's so common in so many different types of virus tells us that this is obviously really important for the ability of viruses to grow efficiently in cells. And so were you to turn the tables and find a way to turn it back on again so the viruses can't block it, you might potentially have a whole new way to treat lots of these infections.
5: Exactly. It's turning out that many different viruses, as well as many different bacteria, have multiple different strategies to block autophagy. Even the same virus can have many proteins that block autophagy. So, that I think illustrates just how important it is for their own survival. And if we can prevent the virus from outsmarting the host cell and bypass the block that the virus puts on autophagy, that could be of strategy for treating viral infections.
0: Have you managed to find a way to stop viruses from turning off the system?
5: Well, the peptide that we recently discovered, which we reported in the article that came out in Nature Today, um, is composed of 18 amino acids from the autophagy protein Beclin-1 one of the essential proteins that's necessary for autophagosomes um, to form. These are
0: the structures in cells that do the breaking down?
5: Right. It can increase autophagy in virally infected cells and we have shown in cell culture systems that it can inhibit the replication of HIV, an intracellular bacteria called Listeria, and to mosquito-borne viruses, chikungunya virus and West Nile virus, and we also showed in animal studies in mice infected with chikungunya and West Nile virus that administration of this peptide could reduce levels of infectious virus in their tissue and reduce mortality.
0: So you have this short little protein which when you put it onto cells does appear to have this very powerful antiviral effect and it seems from what you're saying to actually work against a range of different viruses. So does this mean that a, we could find a way of doing this in pill form and that ultimately we're going to get a cure for the common cold.
5: Um, Well, I wouldn't claim that we have the answer to something that people have been trying to seek out for decades or centuries, but I think that the goal would be, um, as as you're alluding to, I think having the sequence of the peptide that we have and further understanding of its mechanism will enable collaborators and industry to develop a small molecule that could mimic the actions of its peptide and the goal would be to move this into human trials and see whether it could be a cure for for different viruses and other diseases.
0: And just to finish off and the key is in what you just said other diseases there are a range of different diseases that are nothing to do with viruses we don't necessarily think but they do cause rubbish to build up inside cells. These neurodegenerative diseases like Huntington's Now, if you could activate or soup up autophagy in those cells, so some of that accumulating rubbish which we think leads to the destruction of nerve cells and causes the disease, does that mean we might also here have an answer to dealing with a whole raft of these nerve disabling disorders?
5: I would like to be cautious in in saying that there are a lot of steps that we need to take to first confirm the safety of this approach in animal models. But in principle, I think there's a strong likelihood that that could work.
0: Beth Levine from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center and that study was published this week in the journal Nature and incidentally if you'd like to follow up on any of the news stories that you've heard on the program this week then you can get the references and the transcripts from our website at nakedscientist.com slash news.
1: Now for planet Earth and in winter the sea might look dull grey and lifeless but the creatures that live there know that some areas have far more food than others. Fish are particularly fond of ocean fronts, where masses of warm and cold water meet, as these tend to contain large quantities of plankton. Planet Earth's Richard Hollingham has been to see Plymouth Marine Laboratory's Peter Miller.
6: In the atmosphere you get warm and cold air meeting. It's similar in the ocean, you get a big mass of cold water meeting warmer water, and along that dividing line you get mixing processes, and that mixing... Can keep nutrients coming to the surface, and that gives rise to plankton blooms and it keeps the plankton growing for longer. Those are the areas where fish and larger animals have learnt to find better foraging opportunities. So, you're studying these ocean fronts. What are you looking at? We use satellites that are orbiting the Earth every day to map out the, the sea surface temperatures. And over the years, I've developed algorithms to automatically pick out and combine the locations of those fronts. So even though most of the ocean is covered by cloud, we can piece together a view of where these fronts are and simplify them so that you can see one line and then we can relate those positions to where the animals are. And what sort of animals are we talking about here? You mentioned fish. Yeah, we've been studying animals from fish, basking sharks, uh, dolphins, seabirds, all of the top uh, marine predators like seals, turtles. It's surprising how many animals and how many scientists we've found who are interested in relating where their animals are to these productive frontal zones.
7: And one of the scientists doing that work is a PhD student at the Plymouth Marine Laboratory, Kylie Scales, who's also with us on the, on the rocks. What, what animals are you looking at?
8: So I've been using satellite animal tracking data to look at the movements of grey-headed albatrosses in the southern ocean the northern gannet in the celtic sea and loggerhead turtles in the mauritanian upwelling region just some of the species that potentially might be targeting their foraging effort in frontal zones
7: and some of the species i mean they're pretty exotic places around the world but some of the species around the, the coast here include some of these these big fish like basking
9: sharks
8: Yes, yeah, so the basking shark is a, the second largest fish in the world. They range between an average of two to five metres, and we frequently see them around the British coast, particularly around hot spots in the Isle of Man and around Cornwall. They forage primarily on zooplankton, so these areas where you get enhanced zo- zooplankton abundance like frontal zones could be really significant features in the foraging seascape of basking sharks
7: and these are really curious looking creatures because as you say they are massive but just their head is this enormous mouth and even though they're massive they're just eating zooplankton
8: That's right. Their primary foraging strategy is really just to swim along near the surface where you get enhanced zooplankton abundances with their mouths wide open and hoover up anything that might be in their path.
7: And the point of this, Peter, is to relate these ocean fronts to conservation.
6: Yes, what we've been able to do is, with evidence that we're building, such as Kyla's PhD, about the importance of these frontal zones to different animals... We can then start to use fronts as a proxy for increased abundance or diversity of animals like dolphins and sharks and seabirds. For the UK effort to set up new marine protected areas, we were able to feed our data on the distribution of fronts and that's been used quite widely in the project to set up the boundaries of these protected areas to ensure that they conserve some of these pelagic animals. So understanding where these are, how they move, it's quite a big deal, really. It is, and now that we've done the work for the UK, we're now collaborating with American scientists to look at the open ocean, because there's a lot of concern about how difficult it is to conserve the marine life out in the wide ocean, and efforts are underway to start to piece together data that can allow the most important areas of the ocean to be protected
1: Peter Miller from Plymouth Marine Laboratory and you can read a full list of those conservation issues on planet earth online where you can also find the latest planet
0: earth podcast you're listening to the naked scientists with Chris Smith and with Ginny Smith Tasmanian devils are in danger of extinction, owing to a contagious cancer that's spread between the animals by biting. It's called devil facial tumour disease. Devil A, with a tumour, bites devil B, introducing some of the tumour tissue in the process. The tumour then takes root and devil B also develops the disease and will most likely die within a few months. The disease has claimed now more than 60% of Tasmania's devil population since it was first spotted 16 years ago. At first, no-one knew what was causing it until Tasmania-based genetics expert Anne-Marie Pierce looked at the chromosomes from the cancers and made a startling discovery back in 2006.
9: Uh, my background was studying human cancer and I'm a bit of a crossbreed because I started out as a zoologist and switch to looking at chromosomes in human cancer which I did for 17 years. So when this tumour came up I I walked in and told them I thought that uh, maybe I could help. When we looked at the chromosomes in the actual tumour itself we found that they were very very mixed up chromosomes, just a complete mess but the really interesting thing was we found that they were exactly the same in every devil. Now When you get something as complicated as the mix-up in these chromosomes in this cancer, and when you can't find any sex chromosomes in the cancers in animals of either sex, you start to think, hang on, we've got an infectious cell line.
0: So now we know the cause of the condition. Scientists have been trying to work out how to stop it. Hannah Siddle is based at the pathology department at Cambridge University where she's been looking at the immune aspects of the disease. For instance, why isn't the foreign tumour tissue attacked by immune cells? We'll hear from Hannah in a minute. But first, Elizabeth Murchison, also from Cambridge University and the Sanger Institute, works on this disease and has been looking at ways to reverse the decline in Tasmanian devil numbers. Elizabeth, kick off first of all though and tell us what well, actually for people who are not in the know he is a Tasmanian devil.
10: Well, most people in the UK often think that Tasmanian devils are a cartoon character that spins around and around and around. In fact, Tasmanian devils are the largest remaining marsupial carnivore. A marsupial is a mammal like a kangaroo that has a pouch. And um, although most of us are familiar with marsupials like kangaroos and koalas, they also include carnivorous marsupials, which eat meat. And the Tasmanian devil is actually the largest of these in the world.
0: How big? large?
10: Well it's about the size of a smallish dog so uh, the males are actually about double the size of females and they weigh about up to 13 or 14 kilograms.
0: And now they're just confined to Tasmania but were they once Right across the Australian mainland?
10: Yeah, there's fossil evidence uh, that shows that Tasmanian devils used to be found all across the Australian mainland. They went extinct in the mainland of Australia about 1,000 to 500 years ago. Uh, We're not quite sure why. And now they're only confined on uh, the island of Tasmania to the south of the mainland of Australia.
0: And a high proportion of them are succumbing to this disease
10: That's right. I mean, we don't know the exact numbers, but it seems that more than 60% of devils have disappeared as a a direct consequence of this disease that's spreading through their population. And in some areas on the east coast of Tasmania, where the disease was first observed, more than 95% of the devils have already gone.
0: Are they beyond a tipping point or do you think we can save them?
10: Well... It's really difficult to prevent this disease from continuing to spread in the wild because now it's spread through almost all of the Tasmanian devil's habitat. So there's a few different options in trying to protect devils in the wild. Um, One of them is trying to prevent the disease from spreading further, either through building barriers such as fences to prevent the disease spreading or by coming up with some kind of intervention, vaccine or cure to try to uh, keep the disease under control.
0: Which of those is... Proving the most successful or has got the most support at the moment?
10: Well one of the most important uh, uh, conservation efforts that's going on at the moment is uh, translocation projects which is actually taking devils from uh, the wild in Tasmania and putting them onto an island off the coast of Tasmania called Maria Island which previously didn't have a devil population but has now become a haven for disease free devils and we're hoping that devils are going to continue breeding there in the safety of I ice- isolation on the island without the disease so that if the disease actually does wipe out the devils in the wild they could be reintroduced from the island.
0: Will there be enough genetic diversity in such a a small geographical area compared with the normal range they would enjoy were they not confined to the island?
10: Yeah well that's a big concern and worry Um, uh, of course when you take a small population of individuals and uh, keep them breeding in captivity You lose genetic diversity very quickly. And especially if you want to reintroduce this population uh, to found another, uh, to keep the species going, it's really important to capture that genetic diversity to keep the species rigorous and healthy. Um, So at the moment, we're uh, trying to map the Kinds of genetic diversity which is already present in the devil population, in order to select the best devils uh, to maximise the genetic diversity on in the captive island population.
0: Because originally people did think that perhaps the reason that this tumour problem was coming along was because there was a lack of genetic diversity. Do your results bear that out? Are, are the devils that are left in Tasmania relatively inbred, or is there still quite good diversity at the moment?
10: They are relatively inbred. Um, they seem to have much less genetic diversity than many other wild species in Tasmania. However, um, we don't think that this is the, uh, the reason for the spread of the disease. And Actually, this is work from Greg Woods and Alex Kreiss in Tasmania who uh, showed that they can do skin grafts of um, skin between devils that even appear to be very genetically similar to each other and that the skin grafts were rejected uh, by devils, uh, even though the tumours, which are also uh, from different devils, are not rejected. So there seems to be something very special about this tumour which is preventing it from being detected by the immune system.
0: Well, you've perfectly introduced Hannah, (laughs) uh, because this is what you're working on, isn't it? I mean, you're you're asking that very question, what is special about this tumour tissue that when injected into a devil, by a devil or or perhaps even by by a human, if if we were to do that experiment, means that there isn't an immune attack against it? Because were I to take an organ out of me and put it into you, I think there's a really high chance that there would be a very vigorous immune response.
4: Yeah, that's exactly right, Chris. And in humans, we know that we should, if we take a graft and we do a kidney transplant or something like that, we should get a very big and damaging immune response um, to that graft. But in the Tasmanian devil, we don't see a protective immune response to the tumour. And in fact, we hardly see any immune response at all. And I've been interested in, in why this is the case. And our most recent work, um, we've actually shown that in the surface of the DFTD cells...
0: Those are the tumour cells themselves. Yeah, the yep.
4: tumour cells themselves have actually changed some of the molecules that are on the surface of, of these cells. Um, and they've, because they've changed these molecules, that means that they're invisible to the host devil immune system.
0: Oh, right. So are these the same molecules that in my cells, my immune system is looking at those molecules to see whether that cell's one of my cells or if there's a virus in there, that kind of thing, these immune presentation, antigen presenting molecules?
4: Yeah, that's exactly right. We call them, they're called MHC molecules or sometimes histocompatibility antigens. And these molecules are found on the surface of nearly all cells and they are the immune system signals. So they send up flags to say that, no, this cell's healthy, don't attack, or this cell is infected by a virus, or it's malignant, or it's foreign, it's non-self, and that triggers an attack by the immune system so by down-regulating these molecules by the DFTD by the tumour cells it's invisible to the immune system
0: There are lots of viruses that use a similar sort of trick to buy themselves time so that the immune system doesn't realise there's a virus in this cell but the immune system's kind of thought of that because it looks for cells that don't have these molecules and says, aha, well they've been turned off so there must be a virus in there and they attack it anyway so why doesn't the immune system then say, aha, your tumour cell have got none of these molecules. They must have something wrong with them and wipe them out.
4: Unfortunately, with uh, DFTD and the immune response to DFTD, we don't understand that question yet. So MHC molecules... Um, interact with one part of the immune system called T-cells. And they signal to T-cells that either a cell is unhealthy or healthy. And what you're talking about is done where um, there's a downregulation of these um, MHC molecules, either by a tumour cell or by a virally infected cell. That sends a trigger to what we call NK cells um, to, to attack the tumour cell. And um, we don't actually understand yet why NK cells don't attack the DFTD cells um, but that is something that we are working on.
0: But one thing that you presumably have got to the bottom of if you now know these molecules aren't there is why they're not there. So what's responsible for causing them to disappear from the cell surface?
4: Yeah that's right. So um, in cancers we often have um, hard, what we call hard mutations in cancer genomes or soft mutations and hard mutations are Uh, occur in in the gene, and they're actually usually like a a deletion in the gene or some sort of change in the gene that means that that particular gene is not expressed. Now, when we went and looked at the genes that encode MHC molecules in the DFTD cells, we found that we couldn't actually find any hard mutations so we could only we couldn't find any structural changes in these genes that would explain why they're not expressed in the dftd cells so this was a bit of a mystery but what we found is that it seems as if these are what we call soft mutations or epigenetic changes in the genome that's allowing um, the downregulation of these genes by the DFTD cells.
0: This is where you add chemicals or remove chemicals from the proteins that the DNA is wound around or sometimes to the DNA itself to affect whether or not genes get turned on or off. But you can look for those, can't you? So if you go hunting and look at the, the genes that encode these immune molecules are they epigenetically different to a normal cell?
4: That's what we're looking at at the moment. And it does seem as if they do have some epigenetic changes in these genes that's actually silencing um, the genes and get... Have- causing them to be turned off. And if we treat the DFTD cells with epigenetic modifiers, we can actually increase the expression of these genes again. And actually, that's probably one of the most exciting things about this finding, is that because these changes are what we call soft changes, or they're reversible, we can actually, in the lab, restore the expression of these MHC molecules to the DFTD cells. And we think that that could have really important consequences for developing a vaccine to the disease.
0: Because you'd give them a drug that turns these molecules back on, enabling the immune system to see the cancer, which was previously cloaked in this sort of invisibility shield, it would would come back to the attention of the immune system, which would then presumably deal with it.
4: Exactly. Um, and, or an alternative is that we can, by treating these DFTD cells in the lab, we can engineer them to um, express MHC molecules on their cell surface. And then we can put them back into the devils. So we're putting back in DFTD cells that have a signal to the immune system of we're unhealthy, we're foreign, you need to attack us.
0: This must be music to your ears, uh, Elizabeth.
4: Yeah, very,
10: very exciting work.
0: How do you see this being applied?
10: Well, uh, we're all hoping that perhaps this will lead to some to a vaccine that can be uh, delivered in the wild to protect devils from um, succumbing to this disease.
0: Do you think it's realistic?
10: Um, I think so. I, I I think there's still quite a lot of research still to be done, particularly on why it is that the tumour can get established uh, in a devil that's got a healthy immune system, and I think that understanding in more detail how the immune system is not able to attack it will be very important before we can develop a a vaccine.
0: And Hannah what can we learn about ourselves and possibly doing better organ transplants from studying what is going on in these devils because they're effectively doing an organ transplant that is not being rejected aren't they?
4: Yeah that's right and um there's there's that aspect of it, and there's also the fact that these are this is a cancer that is a master at invisibility. Um, and so it not only is invisible in a single animal but it's invisible each time it's being passed through into a different individual. And so the mechanisms that it's evolved in order to escape the immune system are very, very sophisticated. And so I think we can learn a lot about how um, a cell is immune privileged um, and how it can disguise itself from the immune system.
0: Hannah Siddle and Elizabeth Murchison, both from Cambridge. Thank you very much. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Ginny Smith. If you'd like to write to us, you can do so at chris at NakedScientist.com. You can also tweet at Naked Scientist and we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash the naked
1: The majority of cancers are not transmitted, however, but arise spontaneously in the body. So why doesn't the immune system deal with them? This is the question that PhD student Richard Wells is looking into at Cancer Research UK's Cambridge Research
11: Institute. So our lab is trying to work out why it is that the immune system can't stop cancers from growing in in people. It's been known for a very long time that tumour cells, the ones that these rogue cells that grow very fast and, and in a totally inappropriate way, they're so unusual and they're so strange that immune cells that normally are looking for bacteria and viruses and that sort of thing actually realise that that these cells are broken in some way and that they shouldn't be there. But obviously the unfortunate thing is that people with a very healthy immune system still get cancers. So there must be a way that tumours are trying to escape that.
0: Why should the immune system attack
11: the tumour? Because they are, after all, your own cells. That's the really puzzling thing about it. When this was first suggested in the 50s, People thought those who'd raised the idea were were mad because, you know, these are human cells. But it looks like the cells are so stressed and so damaged that they might start producing molecules that act as a trigger in the same way that if you were to cut your arm, it goes red and hot, and that's immune cells going in. And the reason that they go in there is because that there are dead and dying cells, and that's also something we see in cancers. There are cells that are very, very stressed, and they're working really hard to fix themselves, but when they do that, they're putting out all sorts of signals that say that they're, they're not right and they're not working properly, and that also pulls in immune cells. And some people have called a tumour a wound that never heals. So you should have the equivalent of the red arm that you've wounded
0: in your cancer, but you don't. So something unusual is going on. The cancer is in some way preventing that from happening.
11: Yeah, so what we get is we get the sort of the red flare at the very beginning that says there's something wrong, but what we never get is the bit where we fix it and we get rid of what's wrong. And that's the bit where there's sort of two bits to your immune system, and the first bit is the cells that come in and make it red and make it inflamed and say, look, there's something broken here, there's something not right. Those guys are coming into cancers and they're doing their job really well, unfortunately the second set of cells that are supposed to come in and kill off anything that's broken they aren't actually doing their job it's not that a cancer is a mixed bag there are lots of cells
0: some more damaged than others and some of them do get deleted in this way a bit like you're saying the immune system comes in and wipes those out but then there are other cells a little bit more normal at least to start with and maybe the cancer gets away with having those cells the immune system's prepared to let
11: them go that possible so there's two big theories as to how these tumours might be getting away with what they're getting away with. Some people think that the tumour cells manage to make themselves look quite normal and the ones that look the most normal don't get killed. But actually, although we all think of the tumour cell, the rogue cell that's dividing, actually they pull in loads of other different types of supporting cells. What, they attract <coughs> those cells to come into the yeah, cancer from again. elsewhere? Yeah, so it's exactly the same again as like a wound. In a wound you pull in all of these networks of cells that form a mesh around and help the wound to, to fix itself and what we've found is that one of them is very very potent in its manner of stopping immune cells from working. Oh well so the cancer is recruiting a totally
0: different non-cancer healthy cell to come into the cancer mm. and that cell is in turn turning off the immune response. Absolutely that's absolutely right. So you get this local immune Control or suppression really where the cancer is, allowing
11: it to escape under the immune radar and the immune system ignores it. Absolutely, yes. And it's only one type of all of these huge types of cell, and it seems to be one of them is enough to stop the second type of immune response. It's very, very specific in the cell it likes to kill. Why doesn't my sore arm recruit those same cells and turn off the immune response? Why is it only in cancer that this happens? So it seems to be that if you're trying to fix a wound There's a certain amount of of sort of angry immune cells coming in, which is a good thing because it cleans it up, it gets rid of everything, but there has to be a flipping point where you start to say, Okay, I've had enough sort of angry cells coming in and I have to try and calm this all down. I have to try and make everything go back to normal and it can fix itself. And what we get in the tumour is that you get the angry bit, but it then lives for many, many years in a state where everything's calming down and sits there growing within a network that's supposed to just be there for a few days, weeks, something like that. Can you get rid of these cells? So we can in animal models at the moment, and that's proven to be very, very effective, and we can actually can completely control tumour growth of pancreatic tumours in mice. Um, and these tumours are very, very difficult to control with drugs, and in human patients the survival of pancreatic cancer is, is very, very poor. It's less than 4%, I think, for five years. It's harder to translate that into a human patient because what we've since worked out is that, as I said, these are, these are totally normal cells doing a normal thing, And they seem to have really important roles in normal tissue. So the approach that would be the obvious one, which is to say, let's just get rid of these cells, actually, unfortunately, is very hard to do and would cause real problems for a patient. But what we're trying to work out is precisely what in the tumour makes them different. Can we find a drug that's really specific to stop what they're doing in the tumour?
0: Or stop them going into the tumour
11: in the first place? Indeed. So that's the second sort of way that we're also looking at saying, where do they come from um, and how are they getting there? It's possible that there's a mixture. Some get pulled in from the bone marrow. So the bone marrow tends to be this big factory that produces all sorts of different types of cell that go all around the body. And we think some of them go from as far away as the bone marrow all the way through your blood and into your tissue. What are these cells called? So... In general, the the cells that support a tumour are called stromal cells. They're sort of uh, a network. So what we call this cell is the FAP positive stromal cell because we found that the protein that marks it very specifically is FAP, fibroblast activation protein.
0: And if you look at a lung cancer,
11: is it equally likely to have these cells in it as a bowel cancer, a pancreatic cancer or even a brain tumour? So there's different subtypes of uh, tumour. And the one that we're looking at is adenocarcinoma. It's this one type of carcinoma that comes from glandular tissues. And if you look in human adenocarcinomas, the fat-positive cell is present in almost all of them.
0: An amazing thing to be working on during your PhD, which could culminate actually in really effective treatments for cancer. Does that not awe you a bit or sort of blow your mind to be thinking you're working on something that, that is really that cutting-edge therapeutically?
11: Yeah, it's very exciting. I mean, particularly, as I say, I'm training to be a doctor as well. It's really great to see work that's that's coming through that, can operate both at the basic science level but to see where it's going and to see that it could help patients is fantastic
1: PhD student Richard Wells
0: and now to finish off this week Hannah Critchlow has been busy scratching her barnet in inverted commas for our question of the week
12: this week we rinse a question asked by James in Cambridge he wrote in with this
6: hi Looking around at the neighbourhood cats, it struck me that most of them, and indeed most mammals, have patterned fur with several different colours. This made me wonder why humans tend to have uniform colour hair on their heads, faces and bodies. Why is this? Has there ever been anyone with multicoloured or patterned hair, or is it always uniform colour?
12: So, can you get a tabby human? And if not, why not? First up, we strip into the genetics of hair colour.
13: So I'm Professor Ian Jackson. I'm at the MRC Human Genetics Unit in the University of Edinburgh. We understand a bit about the genetics of human hair colour. We know the gene that causes red hair, for example, and we know some of the genes make blonde versus dark hair. But in humans, we never see coloured patterns in their hair. Now, in cats and many other mammals, we see a whole range of patterns. Cats have this stripy, tabby pattern, So the stripes are caused by a gene called aminopeptidase Q. And when this gene is missing, the cats lose that stripey pattern, and have a more blotched pattern where the stripes become irregular. We have this aminopeptidase Q gene. It clearly isn't doing the same thing in humans. We don't actually know what it's doing. Cats also have that tortoiseshell or calico pattern. That's caused by a gene on the X chromosome that makes orange pigment. And females have two X chromosomes, females shut down one of the X chromosomes at random in different cells. So if she has one orange X chromosome and one black X chromosome, then you get a mixture of orange and black patches. It's the classic tortoiseshell pattern. And tortoiseshell cats are always female.
12: Also, the pointed pattern in Siamese cats, where the ears, nose and extremities are darker, stems from a mutated colour gene that switches off at higher body temperatures. So humans seem to have simple genetic rules for hair colour, and they don't respond to the patterning genes in the same way as cats, which is why you don't generally get a tabby human. There are exceptions to this, though. People with piebaldism do show patches of white hair, even at a young age. Their melanocytes, so the cells that produce the pigment for hair colour, have been mutated and switched off, and it's this that produces the colourless patches. And Clifford Kay suggests on the forum that cat hair colour patterns may reflect camouflage, helping cats with stealthy hunting and preventing them from becoming prey. Well, with that one soaked up, we move on to our next question. Logan wrote in with this.
4: I want to be a space scientist when I grow up. First I want to do an experiment at home. I want to find out if we can grow plants on Mars. So to test this, how can I make a small Mars at home? So
12: can you make a miniature Martian environment here on Earth? And if so, how? What would you make it from? Send us your thoughts by posting on our Naked Scientists Facebook page. You can tweet at Naked Scientists. You can join in our live debate on the forum, which is at nakedscientists.com slash forum. Or you can email Chris at thenakedscientists.com.
0: Hannah Critchlow, who will be back next week, helping Logan. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you to our guests, Hannah Siddle, Elizabeth Murchison and Richard Wells. The production this week was by Hannah Critchlow and Ben Vowsler. And next time, we're out in space. We're looking at asteroids and what threats that they might pose to the Earth. I'm Chris Smith, and thank you for listening.